Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Today I'm chatting with Fiona Scherbach, the president of Theme Park Studios and senior staffing specialist at Gameloft. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Ken. How are you this evening? Doing great. So we're going to be talking about quite a few things today, including GDC and Boston Fig, but we need some context in which to understand that conversation. So you have quite the eclectic background in media, having worked at Disney and the Austin Film Festival, Sketch Comedy, Game X. What exactly would you say is your field or your career path or the strengths that you bring? I'm definitely an entertainment producer and marketer. I have been since the very beginning of my career. You know, I spent over a decade in Hollywood working in film and TV and the music industry uh, before working in games. So I treat all of those very much as entertainment fields. And my role has always been in some way responsible for the packaging and selling of a product, whether that was a film product, a game product, or even a person uh, as a human resource within an organization. And how long have you been doing that in the games industry, and what got you to go in that direction? I started out in 1997 in games. I actually uh, began with Origin Systems here in Austin, doing unit marketing and PR. Uh, There were a number of other smaller companies like Kinesoft Development, who I was also doing PR work for at that time. And that evolved. I was also doing journalism, believe it or not. I was writing articles for some of the local uh, press, some of which doesn't exist anymore here in Austin, about things like the brand new South by Southwest Interactive Festival, um, and and really just got very engaged by what was happening with game development um, here in Austin, Texas. So are you originally from Austin or from Boston? I'm actually originally from Los Angeles, believe it or not. So my, my early career was actually in Los Angeles and in Hollywood. I worked for Disney and Burbank. Uh, I worked for recording studios in Hollywood and um, had the opportunity to work you know, across uh, the theme park business, both at Universal and Disney. Excellent. So today we are speaking primarily about the upcoming Game Developers Conference, GDC, being held the same time almost as PAX East, which is incredibly unfortunate because most people have to choose. I'm going to PAX East, but you'll be at GDC, I understand. Yeah, I I had the opportunity and privilege to participate in PAX South uh, just last month here in Texas and San Antonio. It was a great show. So I feel like I've, I've got my fill right now of consumer-focused um, you know, games, uh, talks, and um, content. So GDC does tend to be much more of a you know, convention trade show for the, for the industry. Mm-hmm. And I understand you'll be presenting a panel there, Turning the Tide, Hiring and Retaining Women in the Games Industry. Will this be your first time presenting at GDC? Actually, no. Uh, you know, I do tend to present there every few years. This will be my fifth time, actually, um, over about a 12-year period. So about every two, three years, I get a chance to do a talk either on breaking into the industry or tips for uh, negotiating uh, you know, better job offers, uh, career development. So I've done mostly things in the advocacy track over the years um, and also as part of IGDA when I was chair of IGD Women in Games. Um, got to participate in a number of roundtables as well. So what prompted you to focus on this topic, hiring and retaining women in the games industry? This is certainly a very timely and relevant topic in our industry right now. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. You know, I think it's always been a timely and relevant topic. I don't think that's ever changed, but it certainly is getting a lot more notice, I think, than in the past. And I think there's a couple reasons for it. Um, One is we certainly have more women working in business than ever before, which is great. That's good news. 
The other is that there has been some heightened sensitivity and media activity around, you know, what is it like to be a woman in games? What does that experience really look like? I'm someone who's already spent many, many years, over a decade now, doing things to help promote the idea that the game development environment is a great place for women to work. And I felt that this panel was important and the timing was important to remind people that it's a great career, whether you're a man or a woman, there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's important to separate, uh, you know, sort of the, the fact from fiction and really talk to people and hear from people who are running these studios, who are dealing with the day-to-day issues of hiring and keeping talent and learn what they're doing so that smaller groups, smaller teams, um, other studios that maybe are not as well-versed in diversity hiring and those policies can actually pay attention and learn something. You said separating the fact from the fiction. Can you tell us what some of the fictions might be? Well, I cannot tell you what is untrue, but I can tell you what is true, right? So, you know, in my over, you know, 15, 16 years of working in the industry, not only have I worked in a multitude of studios, both internally and externally, including Irrational Games, uh, Certain Affinity, uh, Tencent, and other studios, but I've primarily been in human resources roles where I've been responsible for hiring people, training people, giving guidance to people, solving HR issues. So my particular lens on the industry as a whole is is the right one for this type of issue, right? So my scope on it is pretty broad, and I tend to sit in more of a bird's nest view like most people working in HR or in hiring, where they're really seeing these issues up, up front and we're dealing with it head on. So for me in all of these years, you know, I personally have not experienced sexism on the job, nor have I participated in it or witnessed it directly with someone I know. What I do know, what I have seen are ad hoc or anecdotal stories from colleagues through third-party experiences like going to a show like GDC or PAX and having someone tell that story either on a panel or, you know, in a hallway conversation. So really my only exposure to it has been primarily from this sort of storytelling perspective. So what I believe and know is that 90% of the people that I work with are really hardworking, dedicated professionals who care about their work, whether they're men or women, and about 10% or less are people who engage in activities of bullying and sabotage to affect you know, the outcome of someone else's work or reputation, and it is negative. Unfortunately, what happens is that gets blown out into, well, this is what happens to everybody, or this is what happens to every woman, or this is what every man does. And I, I feel that that is too simplistic and too broad. As I understand it, however, the industry is composed primarily of men. Why are there not more women in the industry? Well, I, you know, I think there's a different question to be asked. I don't think that's the right question. You know, having come from film and, and music where there are even less women working in those fields, and technology as a whole, you know, certainly is not known for having a lot of women, you know, these are industries that have been dominated by uh, male culture and male leaders for many, many, many decades, right? You know, film over 100 years, music not quite as long games, you know, we're pushing up on like, you know, 40, 50 years now. So the reality is, is that in any, any environment where you have, you know, a heavy number of one gender over another, you're going to have certain imbalances. There's no question about that. There are going to be certain issues and problems. However, many of those male leaders 
you know, do want to have robust teams, do want to have products that sell in the market, do want to have good hiring policies. I have a lot of male bosses and hiring managers come to me frequently over the years, very frequently, usually after I've spoken on a panel or at some event, to say, hey, I want to know how to hire more women. What can I do? We have a hard time finding them. We have a hard time attracting them. Or another one is, and I get this a lot, we have women on our team, but there's issues. We're trying to resolve those issues. How do we do that? So the, the, the takeaway for me was if the majority of people in responsibility positions or decision-making roles are male, they are men, then I need to understand what it is they want, what they need, how they think, and what type of approach will help them accomplish what we think will be better for the industry as a whole and that what most of them would like to have. So it's very much about how do you communicate with male leadership in such a way that they say, yes, that makes sense to us. Coming at it from an altruistic position usually doesn't work. Coming at it from a how does this affect my product, how does this improve my bottom line, that tends to have the most impact. Well, what do you mean by an altruistic approach? Well, I think there's a lot of people who are caught up with the, the moral aspect of it. And, and unfortunately, what happens when you get into moral territory is it becomes quite subjective. Everyone has a different idea of what moral means and what moral looks like. So if you take out the altruistic piece and, and stop saying, here's what you should do, or this is the right thing, if you really want to impart change, you have to talk about, here's how it affects your product. Here's how it affects the market. Here's why it can be a better way for for us, for you, for them. You know, here are stats, here's data that backs that up that tells us that when you have a more diverse hiring policy or workplace, that you have a more appealing product or a more accessible product, that you will be more successful in the long run with your business. As I understand it, even Scientific American has posted reports saying that groups with better gender balance or with more diverse employees tend to produce better products, work harder, and have a better bottom line. Absolutely, which means it's good for men as it is good for women, which is why I'm trying to lean away a bit from the us versus them mentality and really go for, look, this is for everyone. Let's make games for everyone. Let's have work environments that are good for everyone. It's good for everyone, men and women, when you have diverse hiring processes and policies. And that's the same thing Sherry Grainer Ray, a former guest of this podcast, brought up with her book, which was Gender Inclusive Game Design. It's not necessarily about... You know, making a community of female gamers, although that may be important, but it's also about doubling your market, not just selling to the men, but selling to men and women. Yeah, and, and understanding that that, again, is very subjective territory. Look, I, I, games are inter an entertainment medium just like film. In film, you have something for everyone based on every genre, style, and type of film ever made. Not everything is going to appeal to everybody. And, and not every film makes money, right? So we do tend to be in a business that because there's such a high upfront cost in terms of development, we are very focused on making sure that product sells. So yes, we are going to tend to cater from a business perspective to the consumer who's going to spend the most time with that product or spend the most money with it. Only until we create more games that we can say, everyone wants to buy this game, everyone wants to play this game, can we start to say, and look how we were able to make a better product because more men, more women were, were equally engaged in developing it. Now, I, cer I'm, I certainly don't expect you to scoop your entire panel, which is going to have six individuals on it, but from your own perspective, can you give some advice or some sneak peek at what the advice will be on the panel for 
hiring managers who do want to increase or improve the gender diversity and balance in their community? I did go for fairly high profile companies and there was there was some rationale behind that. You know, we do have one independent studio in there as well, Certain Affinity, uh, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. But in terms of all the other, uh, the five, Square Enix, EA, Zenimax, and Wargaming, each of them has very different structure and culture in terms of their company, but they each have obviously multiple business divisions, multiple development studios. So it was a great way to sort of corral in as much data and reference as possible from a broad cross-section of companies saying, look, within these different environments, here's what we are doing. Here's what we're doing that can actually make a difference. And each company is different enough that attendees to the panel should walk away going, okay, I got different pieces of information. Each of those companies are a little bit different. Going back to certain affinity, they're the one independent on the panel, but they are a company that has traditionally worked on AAA products, so their um, their culture has been very much built around that. Um, so they, too, have a viewpoint on here's how we, as a 120-person independent studio, manage our uh, policies when it comes to hiring. Here's how we attract women. Here's how we hire women. So they have their own perspective. They can hire for all those studios out there that are like them. And how is it other than balancing AAA and indie studios. How did you choose these individual panelists who come from such company as Square Enix, Wargaming, Electronic Arts, and Zenimax? Uh, different reasons. I'll give a couple of examples. Cindy Armstrong, who's the U.S. Regional Director for Wargaming.net, what that title means is she's not just uh, head of HR. As a matter of fact, she's studio head or GM equivalent for all the U.S. for Wargaming. She's based out of Central Texas, but oversees all of the studios for Wargaming in the United States. So she's actually a head of studio, multiple studios, who has a long track record of running other studios in her career. So here she is, a woman who's been in this major leadership position almost consistently throughout her career and has dealt with the issue of hiring women in the workplace over and over and over again. And she's excited. She definitely has some unique perspective um, and a lot of experience to draw from, and I can't wait to hear what she says. Ginger Maceda, who's with EA, uh, she's the Director of Global Talent Acquisition for EA. Great reputation as someone who's very focused on strong culture, inclusiveness, diversity. Um, she's she's well-educated, well-trained in those processes and policies, has spent a lifetime learning and turning around and teaching people how to maintain that type of culture within their business, and she's a, she's a rock star at EA. One of the things you'll be talking about is getting more candidates out there. I've heard anecdotes of hiring managers who say that there aren't just any women applying for the job or there aren't any qualified women applying. How can hiring managers get more applications, more diverse applications from which to choose? What can they do to encourage applications to their workplace in the first place? It's a great question. So it's what I call the halfway question. So if we talk about the the lack of female candidates, that's sort of half the question and half the problem. So to get to the other half or to get to the solution, companies who truly understand that it will take extra effort to attract women need to go the next step or go the other half. And the other half is, okay, we know there are fewer female candidates out there. That means it's a different project to find them what are we going to do differently and and it's a tough call because you can't have you know what appears to be exclusive treatment but at the same time you do need to do things that can outreach into the community a bit more deeply and directly 
Um, there's a variety of things you can do. You know, hire people who are experienced, qualified recruiters, both internally and externally, who can go out and pinpoint those candidates, who can go to events such as, you know, Women in Games Boston or Women in Games International in Vancouver or in Los Angeles and actually directly meet people hands-on and encourage them. What we know about female candidates starting from even the earliest days of their career is that, you know, they do have some trepidation about putting themselves out there. They do need encouragement. So they may not be as um, likely to, you know, speak on panels or show up at major events. So we have to try harder. We have to do a bit more to do community outreach and to connect with them earlier in their careers. A former guest of this show, who admittedly does not work in the games industry, espoused the belief that historically women just haven't been interested in working in games. Do you believe that's true? No, I don't believe that's true. I think when we have sensationalist media that makes the games industry look unappealing, it chases women away. I don't even think there's a question of that. It's one of the reasons I'm doing this panel. I think there are a lot of women, especially girls, young girls, starting in middle school and high school, who love to play games. Look, any guy who works in games will tell you, why did I get interested in making games? Because I played games. Well, girls and women are no different. We play games. We want to make them. So I think there's a very strong interest for many young women and girls to make games because they play them, and they're playing more of them. I think we're it starts to fall apart is when they, you know, respond to or hear about something in the news or social media or TV that makes them go, oh, but maybe that's not a safe environment for me. And then they go off into something that they think is going to be more secure. At that point, is it too late in the pipeline to get them into the industry? Do we need to be addressing younger women and getting them into, you know, science and and engineering schools and summer camps to get them interested in gaming? I think so. I think so. You know, there's programs out there like Girl Start and Game Camp and a variety of others that are already doing that. We know from research and studies that young people, male and female, tend to make certain decisions as early as middle school, not just high school, about what it is they think they're both capable of and what they're interested in doing. And even though they don't really know themselves, they tend to sort of commit themselves to certain ideas early on. So, you know, thank God for STEM in the United States and the fact that we have programs in public schools that do support a certain amount of STEM activity. We could use more of it. But absolutely, getting to young males and females fairly early and promoting, hey, here's how science or technology leads to a game game career. We have some of that happening a lot more than ever before. There's room for more of it. So let's say that we get them interested early and the hiring managers have done their job and they've gotten a more gender-balanced workplace. One of the other things that the panel is going to be talking about is how to create work environments that are appealing and safe for women. What does that mean? It's a great question. You know, there are definitely stories. Again, we'll go back to what's anecdotal and sort of hearsay. There are definitely stories that I've heard over the years about certain studios doing things that are not particularly appealing for women. And if you were one of the women who heard those stories, you would not want to go work for that studio. So I think one thing studios can do is avoid doing anything that's going to let some sort of unappealing tale get out into the ether that makes their reputation look bad. You know, you should be maintaining a high level of integrity in terms of how you run your business, how you manage your staff, and what kind of policies you have in place when it comes to your male and female employees. Um, If you're doing things that, you know, are going to discourage people from working for you, both male and female, you're going to have a hard time hiring. 
sometimes I'm confused and conflicted myself about what exactly it means to have a safe work environment, and I don't think that was any clearer than this past November when Matt Taylor at NASA was by some groups lambasted for wearing a shirt featuring scantily clad women during a news interview. Some people said that is objectifying women in a professional environment. Other people said it's just a shirt. It's a it's a fashionable shirt. And he just landed a satellite on a comet. I would go down the middle of that. I would go right down the middle of that and say, when you're on television, you're taking a different role you're, you're acting as a public spokesperson. So when you represent a major recognizable organization like NASA, and that's the thing that you happen to choose to wear, it's not that he was objectifying females. It's that he was sending in a message on through public media that this was an acceptable garb under those circumstances, which would be automatically off-putting probably to most women who were considering working for NASA. Yeah, I agree. Given the circumstances, I, you know, I admire NASA and this gentleman for their contributions to science. Of course, but yeah, if you're if you're going to appear on television, and I don't know that he knew that he would be. Maybe he just got caught by a journalist. But if you know you're going to be on television, maybe not make that choice. <laughs> or or someone around him, the responsible HR person or manager, need to pull him aside and say, you know what? Before you go on camera, we need to change your clothes. Literally, I mean, someone else needed to be there to be responsible for that. And this is where I think. The game industry still does have a long way to go, and this is why I promote the idea that HR is part of the solution. You know, human resources is there to promote you know, better work environments, better process, better onboarding, retention, you know, you know, having uh, the ability to have a culture where people can speak openly and have transparency. So, you know, often we are in the role where we can and should step up and say, hey, we need to watch out for this. We as a company don't want to present ourselves that way. We don't want to go out there into the public and say and do these things because it will have this ill effect later. So I think strong HR groups and strong HR leaders do take that position. They can. Sometimes they don't. And it's something else I'm trying to promote, which is, look, HR is designed to support and build better studio cultures Let's go to them when there's an issue and ask them to take that role. Let's do more so that when these types of situations come up, you're stepping forward and saying, let's do a better job of how we package and promote how our culture looks. Along the line of creating appealing and safe work environments, you mentioned that maybe there are 10% of people in the workforce who are bullies. And I agree that the vast majority of people, especially in the games industry, are wonderful people. Mm-hmm. You and I wouldn't be here if that wasn't the case. That's correct. If, if this was a predominantly toxic environment, then we would go somewhere else. But But games are wonderful, gamers are wonderful, and game developers are wonderful. When we say only 10% of them are bullies, that is looking at the perpetrator. But let, you know, I work in an environment with about 300 people, and if 30 of them were bullies, then I suspect that probably 100% of us would experience that in some capacity. So do we still need to address that issue of the, the minority, the small minority? Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely the idea. You know, If you have a strong company culture that does not tolerate bullying – 
then that, that number of 10% is less and less, right? And, and there's no question you want to manage it because it does affect the other 90%. And not, not just people's temperament or how they feel on a day-to-day basis, but their productivity, the, the effect on their work, the impact in their relationships on the job. So a lot of what happens is behind closed doors or is somewhat subversive. It's not ever out in front. And that's part of the problem. You know, what, what we see or hear is often sort of behind the shadows. And this is where and why I encourage people to go to their HR teams and go, look, don't be afraid. Speak up. Talk about what's going on with you. Talk about the conversations. Document everything. Right. You know, hearsay can be very damaging to someone's career. Don't walk into a discussion without having information documented. So you can say, no, look, I have dates and times and here's what happened. And at least then a rational conversation can be had about facts and information. One of the items on the description for this panel gives me pause. Whenever you talk about changing the gender ratio in an industry, that is by its very nature disruptive. And yet one of the clauses in your session description is that attendees will learn how to increase the hiring of women and design secure environments while maintaining equilibrium with their entire core staff. What does that mean? You used an interesting word, which is disruption. I think disruption only occurs at a dynamic level. In other words, it has to be a pretty high impact for it to make a big change, right? We're only moving the needle a little bit at a time. Uh, We're not talking about suddenly going from environments that are 20% women to 60% women. That, to me, would be a disruption. What we are talking about, though, is possibly changing the way a company is used to running itself from the top down, from leadership down, who may have to step back and go, you know what, this is different from what we've done in the past, or this is a approach that I'm not totally familiar with. So I think it's a light level of disruption, primarily with management, which is, hey, management, we are and we can do things that will help us be a more diverse work environment, but we need you to buy into that concept. And that's going to create some change, no question about it. I think where some of the confusion happens in terms of workplace inclusivity and diversity is this idea that game development is a technology industry. And and it's really not. It's an entertainment medium. You know, yes, we are doing software development. Yes, we are creating products using very sophisticated technology. But generally speaking, we are an entertainment medium like music, like film, like TV. The stakes are higher in entertainment. It's a much more subjective environment. We're product-driven uh, we're dealing with fickle audiences. Consumers will pay more money for a, pro- a game product, for entertainment or film, than education. But we know this. Workers are in the same boat. It's a highly competitive environment, just like film, just like any other entertainment medium. So oftentimes what we're talking about is not necessarily injustice or inequality, but the simple aspect that's a highly competitive business. And I think that's partly being reflected in the recognition that gaming development requires a variety of skills. When I was in college, I thought I wanted to be a game developer, but back then, the education aspect of this industry was so nascent that game development was synonymous with software development. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, that same school that I graduated from has an entire undergraduate and master's degree program in interactive media and game design and potential game developers are taking English classes and art classes and music classes and recognizing that there's a lot more to this than just knowing, you know, C++ or C sharp. Yeah. 
games games are not straight tech. Games are a media influenced culture, and therefore that means that if you walk in with only a technological background or training and not enough you know, social political smarts to navigate your way through it, you're going to have a hard time, whether you're male or female. Exactly, exactly. So this panel, Turning the Tide, Hiring and Retaining Women in the Games Industry, will be Wednesday, March 4th at GDC in room 2001 West Hall at 2 o'clock. I've never been to a GDC before, partly because it's on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast where we're buried in snow, and also because the admission is aimed at people who work in the industry, which I do not. Uh, but I am curious a little bit like what GDC is like. I've heard some, again, these are anecdotes. One was from Susan Arndt when she was on my panel at PAX East last year about how a female developer at GDC was mistaken for working in PR. And uh, two years ago, I read about how Darius Kazemi and Brenda Romero resigned from the IGDA over female dancers at a GDC party. Would you say that GDC is a pretty welcoming environment and these are the exceptions rather than the rule? Yes, I would say that. You know, I, I liken stories like that to something I've attached to recently, which is this concept of shark attacks. You know, shark attacks, they get a lot of media attention, but they only kill five people a year. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but the reality is, is that it is the truth. GDC is the most important centralized professional trade show event for the entire games industry, probably almost worldwide. And the number of women who are there is so much bigger than it was even three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago. And I've been going for over a decade. So not only is the increase in female participation highly visible, but they're, they're participating across all levels as speakers, as presenters, as uh, managers of companies, as uh, leaders within the community doing things with nonprofits. This is the Polygamer Podcast, and we have sort of two goals here. One is to look at how to improve the industry, which we just spent the last half hour doing. The other half is celebrating what is already great about the industry, and I'd like to transition a little bit into that and talk about the context in which you and I were originally acquainted, which is the Boston Festival of Indie Games, or Boston Fig, which you helped found back in 2012. Yeah, believe it or not, there's actually a women in games uh, component to the genesis of the festival. <laughs> so in October of 2011, I went to a Women in Games Boston event in Cambridge where there was a speaker named Matt Wees, who at that time was the studio manager of the MIT Game Lab. And he gave a talk to the Women in Games Boston audience about horror in video games and, and the role that female gender played in horror in video games. It was quite fascinating. And Matt and I started talking, and he invited me to the MIT Game Lab, where I had a chance to take a tour. I'd learned that over about a five-year period, they had developed with their, their students about 55 video games. And some of them were quite phenomenal. A number of them had gone on to get awards, uh, to go on to become commercial products. But by and large, most people didn't know about these games. They were sort of hidden within the MIT confines, not promoted, not marketed. And I went back to MIT a couple months later and said, why don't we do a festival? I don't see anything happening in Boston in terms of independent game development um, promotion. We could do a festival that centers on the MIT Game Lab and the games that you've developed over the years and invite other developers locally to come in and be part of that. And it was actually at GDC in 2012 that I had that next big conversation with Matt. 
and um, his partner, Clara, who ended up being our curator for the first two years of the festival. That was the very, very, very early beginning. By May of 2012, after multiple meetings with MIT, we had formed an ad hoc committee of people, myself, Caroline Murphy, Dan Silvers, and Justin Rounds were the principal original founders of the festival. Um, I had approached Caroline because she was at that time running Boston Indies, and MIT had asked me to approach her because they said, look, she's going to have a finger on the local community. Um, Let's bring them in and make them part of this as well. I've attended all three Boston Figs, and I covered the first two for Computer World magazine. That first one had a great lineup of guest speakers, including Lee Alexander and I believe Jason Scott, and some great developers as well. But I remember the developers were crammed into some pretty small rooms, and that was a big change compared to the next two years, where they had a huge gymnasium, basically. So it sounds like Boston Fig, the first one, was a little bit more popular than even you anticipated. You know, we knew that there were unknowns. When you do a first show, whenever you do a first show, there are certain unknowns. You know, we had made some predictions fairly early on, and considering that we had a less than six-month ramp-up to produce and promote it, um, we, we kind of leaned on the conservative side in terms of numbers. When we saw that first show bust at the seams, it was very encouraging. It meant that we had done everything right. You know, while some things ended up not running smoothly because it was very jammed, um, we also knew that that meant that the developers had a big audience. And it also meant that press showed up and wrote about it. It also meant that sponsors who came there and spent their money on a first-time show actually got the audience that they wanted. You were part of Boston Fig for its first two years before moving to Texas. What were some of your highlights of those first two years, your favorite moments or accomplishments? I think seeing it come together, you know, there was a very focused effort to organize it at the grassroots level, but to follow a professional festival format in order to make that happen. And we developed a production team that was very egalitarian and very democratic. We worked very hard together as a group um, to, you know, really look at every possible facet of how to make it a good event, how to make it something that worked for the community as well as for the the game developers who were showing their games, um, and how to make it appealing to an audience that maybe wasn't familiar with those games. You know, it's one thing to throw an event where well-known game titles are being shown. I'll reference PAX as an example. It's another thing to have games and developers who no one has ever heard of and say, here's something you should come check out. So the fact that we were able to develop and manifest a very aggressive and successful marketing and PR campaign year to year has, for me, been a big accomplishment. Uh, I'm very proud of those efforts. I think I need to get that same marketing campaign to help me with my YouTube channel because when I put up videos, you know, let's say I put up a video of Grand Theft Auto or Destiny or Call of Duty, I get I would get tons of hits. But when I put up videos of indie games, people aren't necessarily searching for those words, and I don't get the page views that I, I feel these games deserve. They they deserve to get more attention because they're so creative and artistic and experimental. It, it was one of the key reasons to have the festival was the recognition that. You know, I had been in other markets, including Austin, where, you know, Austin's a great place, but does not have the depth and breadth of indie game development that Boston does. And I think one of the reasons Boston's indie scene is so much deeper is because you do have so many more uh, tech and science programs, schools that really are supporting that type of activity. So you have a lot of students and grads coming out with the, the resources and the knowledge to actually develop games, to make good games. 
So to me, it felt like a void that needed to be filled and that Boston was a great place to have an event like that, not just because of Boston local, but also the fact that you could attract developers from New York, Montreal, Philly, wherever on the eastern seaboard where they would, they would have a chance to actually have their work seen and promoted. I'm almost surprised it took this long to create something like Boston Fig because there are so many indie groups representing that community here in Boston. As you mentioned, Women in Games, but also uh, Caroline Murphy's Boston Indies Group and Boston Games Forum, now known as Playcrafting, the Boston Postmortem. I'm surprised that it basically took an outsider, per se, someone who was not acting as a representative of one of those four groups to create Boston Fig. There's a reason for it. Event production is its own discipline. Everything you just described, those are well-formed and very uh, uh, worthy organizations that act primarily as community support for the people who are who are involved with them. I have almost 20 years doing trade shows and consumer events, producing uh, seminars, conferences, uh, all types of events of all sizes from you know 200 to 20,000. So for me, it was a combination of my love for games and game development and applying all of my event production and marketing skills and saying, we have an opportunity here, let's do something with it. And that's a fantastic skill set that you brought to the table, and I'm glad that you were in the right place at the right time to create this institution in Boston that has now uh, persisted even beyond your ability to be locally involved in it. And that was always the plan. You know, the expectation was to build success the first two years, develop a blueprint, and a team that could continue to operate and that could continue to evolve. You know, we've changed leadership a little bit from year to year, and that's been a healthy evolution that's helped with the growth of the studio. Um, I continue to be an advisor. Some of our prior producers also continue to be advisors. So there's a lot of legacy that continues to support the festival, and, and we hope to see it continue to grow. I love attending the panels and keynotes at various events, where whether it's Boston Fig or PAX. And at Boston Fig 2013, you had two great keynote speakers. One was Robin Hunicky of Journey, and you had the Videri String Quartet playing her music, which was just a phenomenal combination. I loved that. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I, when, when I finally got to briefly meet you, it was to take a photo of you with my friend Paul Marzagalli and the other keynote speaker, Brian O'Halloran, better known as playing Dante in the movie Clerks. He would not strike some people as an obvious choice for a festival about indie games. So what was the correlation there, clerks and indie games? There, there's a, a couple things, several things, actually. So one, going back to games being about media and culture, right? So pop culture is represented by celebrity types. When we go to conventions or cons, you know, we see a lot of celebrities there, uh, you know, BC-level celebrities who, guess what, they love games, they play games, they're all about games. Brian's one of those people, you know, he started out playing D&D when he was a kid. One of, the, one of the talks that he gave at Boston Fig was how D&D basically saved his life, um, that it stopped him from going out and being a gangster on the street as a teenager. Um, and, and But then he continues to be a huge fan of games. I think one of the, the best experiences I ever had with him is that we were both at a, a game consumer show in Philadelphia some years ago and Yahtzee came around the corner, Yahtzee Crenshaw and or Kershaw, and he he Brian jumped about twenty feet in the air, landed feet first in front of Yahtzee and said, I'm your biggest fan. That's awesome. 
So his enthusiasm level for games and game development is very high, like a lot of other people who are well-known celebrity figures. So bringing him in as MC made a lot of sense because he could really talk about it. He understood the medium. Um, he understands the fans and the players, um, and he brings a very smart uh, perspective to it. Has he ever wanted to get into game development himself, do you know? Um, I don't know about development per se. I think he would like to have more of a creative role, perhaps doing voiceover um, or participating in game testing. I mean, he's someone who definitely plays constantly. So I would say on some level, yes. But, uh, you know, I think he would just appreciate the opportunity to, to keep participating in game events. So you mentioned that Austin, where you are now, doesn't necessarily have the level of indie scene that Boston does. Are you still able to get your indie fix in your new home? There is an indie scene here. It's the scale's just different. We do have several pretty strong groups. There's a VR Austin group, which is quite active. Um, Video Game Makers Unite, which is put on at the Capitol uh, Factory in downtown once a month, where developers come in and show their latest work. And then, of course, you know we have the the offshoots of South by Southwest Interactive. Um, Fantastic Arcade, which is a very nice little festival here in Austin um, that's part of Fantastic Fest, a big film festival. So there, I, I don't want to say there is minimal community. There's a pretty good one. Um, but in terms of individual developers making games, it's probably about 40% of what's in Boston. Sure, sure. I didn't mean to suggest that Austin has no or minimal, just that it's dwarfed by Boston. Yeah, it's just we don't have the number of, of tech schools to support it. So you just don't have as many people making games. I would say the people who are here making them are quite passionate. Um, and, and when you go to these events, especially something like Wagos Rancheros at the North Door once a month, uh, where you get to see two or three new games, you realize, oh, you know, even though we don't have quite the scale of Boston, there's, there's still some very strong work here. And I don't know if there'll be a future, you know, sort of Austin indie festival. I think these smaller groups tend to sort of support the, the community based on the size that it is. Now, Austin, of course, is just an hour northeast of San Antonio, which just last month played host to the very first PAX South. Did you happen to be there? I did. As a matter of fact, I gave a very similar presentation at PAX South. Very similar topic. It was with hiring managers and HR heads from Texas-based studios, uh, specifically Arcane, Battlecry, uh, and EA. And we had a, a standing room only audience of over 500 who came in to hear some of the same topics and ask some of the same questions that you are today. It was a great experience. Um, San Antonio is a good location for PAX because it is a high populous city. Um, it is certainly a place where you would have a high number of consumers show up pretty automatically. But I know for a fact that people flew in from all over the place. Sure. I had friends flying there all the way from North Dakota. Now, this being the first PAX South, I imagine that there may have been some growing pains or just getting the lay of the land. I know PAX East, for example, its very first year was at the Heinz Convention Center. And it didn't take them long to realize that it was too big an event for that venue. And they moved to the BCEC for the next 20 years or so. Well, it, it goes back to what I said earlier about first events, right? Your first event, two things happen with the first event. One, you, you get a lay of the land and you really learn about your local audience. Two, it's your last opportunity to make any mistakes. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's, you, you kind of get a, 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 a get-out-of-jail card-free with that first event because anything that didn't go well or could have been done differently or better or should have been handled you know, a certain way, you can look back at it and go, you know what? It was the first event. We know what to do next time. Um, you know, PAX and Penny Arcade do such a great job of producing their events. They know what they're doing. 
They shipped in all of their enforcers. I met and spoke to about a half dozen of those enforcers. All of them came in from Seattle. Um, they're really experienced. They're really well organized. They're very well trained. They're very smart people. Um, so anything that the show didn't live up to or couldn't deliver this first time around, I'm not too worried about it. I think a lot of the bigger name companies tend to hold back on a new show. They want, they have the same attitude, which is we want to see it prove itself. Well, also there are just so many PAXs nowadays to support that it's getting almost challenging to be at all the events. I think it depends on your goal. If, if you're a publisher or you're anyone involved with marketing or promoting a product, you just need to get there, right? Like go to the show because this is another subsection of your audience who's going to go out and talk to other consumers who buy your product. So, it, you know, regionally speaking, I remember when the first PAX East happened and it sold out in like minutes, it was a big indicator to me of how important the Northeast was as a consumer community. And I'm impressed by the studios that are able to appear at so many of these events. For example, 11-Bit Studios, creators of this war of mine, they're based out of Poland. I knew that they were coming to PAX East, and I was surprised to hear that they were also at PAX South, because that's just six weeks apart that they're making this trip all the way from Europe to be at these events. But I would think that an indie studio wouldn't necessarily have the budget for that, but they must see the value in it. I think the value is there. There, there is no competition to PAX. PAX, for, for the time being and maybe forever, is the preeminent game consumer show. It, it is the uh, sort of you know be-all, end-all for, for showing up at one event where you can see new games, play games, actually have accessibility to the games and the people who make them, uh, go into panels and actually learn things, not just as a consumer, but maybe... Um, as a wannabe developer or someone already working in the business. So they've got a great model. They've, they've really figured it out. And as much as we already have to choose which events to go to, I wish that they would, to the extent that they can, coordinate the scheduling so that we can go to more of the events. I know that not only is PAX East and GDC at the same time, as we previously mentioned, but PAX South and MAGFest down in D.C. were at the same time. And it's, it's challenging for those of us who just want to go to them all. I, I agree. I, you know, I, I can't go to all of them either, and I feel like if, if there are three of them now, that's actually good news because at least it's a little easier to get to one of them. Four if you count Australia. I won't go to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. It's lovely. It's worth the trip. Maybe not just for PAX, but for everything else. So you have accomplished a lot in the gaming industry, presenting these panels at PAX and at GDC and founding Boston Fig. Any upcoming adventures you want to share with us? I am working right now with a Silicon Valley-based publisher who is um, working with indie game developers to license their games and market them in China. So as part of my work with Boston Fig and the, and the bigger indie game development community as a whole, I'm working with developers to get their games uh, marketed and sold in the Chinese market. Wow, that can be a very challenging market. The culture is very different over there. It is, but there are some things that, that are pretty um, clear. You know, Android products are in. That's number one. Uh, number two is that we do have a really awesome game review and evaluation process that tells us whether or not uh, a game will survive and thrive in that market. Uh, there's a bit of a litmus test for that. So we, we, we're pretty excited. We've already put out about 10 games in China in the last year and uh, expect to be doing twice that in the next six months. Excellent. And I don't know if this was told to me off the record, but can we talk about your upcoming relocation to Seattle, the hotbed of the gaming industry? Sure, absolutely. I'm excited about Seattle. Seattle's always been on my personal list. It's one of the places in the tech and entertainment world I have not lived 
Um, my husband, Morgan Ogburn, is now art director for Game Off Seattle. And one of my former bosses from Tencent, Michael Fitch, is the studio GM there in Seattle. So we're very excited to be making the move. Um, Seattle is, you know, probably the number two location in the United States in terms of density of game development after Bay Area. And I, I just can't wait to get there because there's so many people I know who are already there. Right. I once had a job interview in the game industry out in Seattle, and I'm glad it didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but there would have been a lot of upsides to being in that location. Just the number of opportunities in the games industry, the number of experts and industry professionals that you get to meet and work with and collaborate with, I'm really envious. I think it's a very grown-up environment because of companies like Microsoft and Amazon, Bungie, Valve. These companies have been there for a long time, so you've got a very deep local culture of, you know, AAA game development at the highest level. And I think that's what I'm looking forward to is is being in an environment where uh, it's kind of the heartbeat of where a lot of that development is happening. Yet to be seen what the indie scene looks like, hard to know. Uh, there may not be as much room for indies since so many people are working in the higher level jobs, but uh, it's one of the things I hope to discover. Great. Well, I look forward to learning more about your adventures and what you discover when you're out in Seattle. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and with the Polygamer audience. Where can our listeners find you online? I am... Twitter is F. Sherbach, and I'm on LinkedIn, and you can email me at Fiona at ThemeParkStudios.com. Great. And that Twitter is F-C-H-E-R-B-A-K. Correct. Well, thank you again so much for your time, and I look forward to the GDC panel. I won't be there, but I understand that GDC often archives presentations in video and audio, so that will be available online eventually, I presume? Uh, I confirmed recently that it will be in the GDC vault. I had asked if it might be a little more accessible than that. I know a lot of people are interested in the panel who won't be at GDC and may not have access to the vault. So I'm actually lobbying GDC right now to see if we can do something, particularly because of the topic and the timeliness, to get that uh, out into more of the mainstream so more people have access to it. Um, But we'll see. I know that the room has been set up for 500. And as you said, that same topic at, was it PAX South, was standing room only? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so this is a a timely topic, and given the expertise you and your panel bring to the subject, I'm sure you won't have any problem selling it out. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. I think it will be a tougher audience because it is much more game developer-centric. I think we we have people who've had their stories and experiences who are going to want to address those uh, through the Q&A, and it'll be interesting to see what we, we hear and what we come up with. Yeah, this is just the audience that needs to be hearing this talk, so best of luck to you. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Ken. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.